So I would invite you uh, in your copy of God's Word to turn to the text, to follow along uh, and see together this morning uh, the Word of God uh, revealed to us here in these words, in these verses, uh, and in these uh, chapters that we're looking at together. Uh, I'm sure... Uh, Like myself, many of you have seen the images that have been released over the past several months from the James Webb Telescope, Uh, these images of parts of the universe that man has uh, never laid eyes on before, these glorious extraterrestrial things that are are being posted on the internet um, are incredible to see, and again, things that man has never laid eyes on before. You think about Little flowers that grow on the side of the cliffs of the Grand Canyon each season. They live and then they die and uh, for no one to see. Uh, there are organisms that live on the top of the Tapuis in South, Amer- South America that uh, no human being will ever see or know uh, of their existence. And when we see all of this throughout creation to the far ends of the universe... Uh, We might ask why. Why would something exist for just a moment only to die and go unnoticed by human eyes? Well, we know this morning that all of these things exist for the glory of God alone. All of creation exists for his glory. All of creation declares the glory of God as we just sung about. Uh, And this is especially true of chapter 1 of Genesis As we look through this famous chapter of the Bible, one that has been dealt with for centuries by scholars and theologians and pastors, um, I want us to rest under this overarching truth this morning as we consider uh, chapter 1 and the first three verses of chapter 2. And that is this. There is one true living God who is at work in and through his creation— And created everything according to his perfect wisdom and power. So we'll consider that today. If you would, follow along with me as we begin by reading in verse 1 of Genesis 1. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit and which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be signs, be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. 
And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with the seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. May God bless the reading of his word. I want us to break our main idea, our thesis this morning, up into three parts as we consider the text that we just read together. The first thing I want us to look at is that there is one true living God. Um, You do not have to be a theologian or a scholar or a pastor to know who the main character of Genesis chapter 1 is. It is quite clear. It is God. Uh, This word Elohim in the Hebrew that we talked about last week, the common word for God, is used 34 times in the text. And so as we read through that, even if you're a child, you can notice that God is the central character to chapter 1. And I would argue that he is the central character to all of Scripture. Uh, The writer here doesn't just use the word Elohim a lot to show us something about the character and nature of God. Uh, But he also, in using the word, is showing us something grammatically. And so I'm sure many of you are not thrilled to think about grammar, but this is important. Um, If you were to buy a commentary on the book of Genesis and read about what the commentator has to say about Genesis 1, he is uh, most definitely going to point out to you that the word Elohim in the Hebrew is in the plural 
Uh, and so kids who are here today in school, you've learned, I'm sure, if not recently or a while back, that a noun can be singular or plural. A singular noun means one. A plural noun means two or more. And so we have to ask ourselves then, if he's using a plural noun, is he teaching some sort of polytheism, that there are many gods? Well, we can look at the context, as we talked about last week, and we affirm that he is most indeed talking about Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, next week when we get to chapter 2, he's going to use the name Yahweh. Uh, also, uh, again, to not bore you with grammar, but, but commentators are going to point out to you that the plural name of God here is followed mostly by verbs in the singular. And so the writer most definitely has in mind here the one true living God. But semantics aside, it's more important for us to ask why. Why has the writer, Moses, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, used this word Elohim in such a way? Well, by using the word in this way, he wants to show us the glorious nature of God, the complexity of his character and his being, but also the oneness of God. We have to look no further than the Trinity itself to see this illustrated for us, that we worship one God that exists in three persons. Uh, Moses most assuredly had the Trinity in mind as he's writing this because you notice there in uh, verse 26, he said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. This is Trinitarian language. Moses has in mind the Trinity here, and so he's teaching us something first about the glorious grand nature of God and the oneness of his nature. But this also helps us to understand creation around us, but to see God in the created order. So uh, skeptics in our day will uh, present the question of, can we um, reconcile the complexity of creation with order? Are, are those things at odds? And so uh, many modern-day thinkers will say that, you know, we're just a ball of goop that we call a planet floating through space randomly, and it's just complete and utter chaos. There's no order. There's no purpose to it. But we affirm, according to Genesis 1, that there is order to this complex world. And in that, the order of a complex universe reveals the unity and the diversity of the nature of God. He is grand. He is glorious. He is the one true living God. And so in the day when Moses wrote this, that would have been earth-shattering stuff to the pagan polytheism of the day of Moses. But um, friends, it's still provocative in our day that we would gather in this place and affirm that Yahweh is the one true living creator God and that all of creation declares his glory and exists for his glory alone. Um, Last week I mentioned one of the reasons we've come to Genesis is um, because it is still relevant to our day and we must return as the church to the essentials of the faith. And one of those essentials of the faith is this simple yet profound truth that there is one God and everything exists for his glory. If we lose sight of this, the church and the coming generation will suffer. And I'm afraid we've already seen the consequences of that in our day. Last week I mentioned moralistic, therapeutic deism. If you came to Table Talk last Sunday night, we unpack this a little bit more, but I think this helps illustrate an important point to us. 
Uh, in the early 2000s, there was a book that was written by a gentleman based on some research that was done. And in the early 2000s, they did some research among youth who were professing followers of Christ, evangelical youth in the early 2000s. And what they found led them to create this title to describe Christianity in our day for the most part. That it's just a list of rules that people see for themselves to just become better people and they just attach God to it to feel better about themselves. And in this research, they found five things primarily about the, my generation, that youth in the early 2000s. The first was that they found that they affirmed that God exists. Well, the demons believe that God exists. Uh, there are many people who believe in the existence of God. The second thing that they found was that the youth of the early 2000s, evangelical youth, saw that God wants people to be nice as taught by most religions. The third thing they found is that the central goal of life is simply happiness. The fourth thing they found is that the youth of the early 2000s affirmed that God does not need to be involved in our lives unless we need him to resolve a problem. And then fifthly, the majority of them felt that it was good people who go to heaven. I believe that this small view of God and big view of man in religion is a consequence of man-centric Bible teaching in our day. Decades of Bible teaching and preaching in our day that puts the emphasis on people rather than the creator. And we're left with a generation that we wonder why they've fallen away from the church. Where have the youth gone Many of them have denied faith in Christ and have no relationship with Christ as their Lord and Savior. I would argue it's because we've gotten away from the essentials of the Bible. And so the application then for us can be um, in, in, in many areas of our life, but I want us to think about then how we take this truth that there's one true creator God and all of creation exists for his glory and apply it to how we understand the Bible. How do we read the Bible couple things to consider. The primary question we should ask as we read and study the Bible is, what does this say about God? There's a lot of questions that we could and should ask about the Bible as we read it, but this is the primary question. Listen, the Bible is not primarily about you and what you should be doing. The Bible is mainly about God and who he is, what he has done and what he has promised to do. This story of redemption, creation, fall, redemption, restoration is about a God who saves in time and space. So don't take the bait of making the Bible and the Christian life about you. Now notice I said the Bible is not primarily about you. Uh, there are most definitely parts of scripture that are about us and what we are to do, but they are about us and what we are to do in response to the redeeming work of Christ in our lives by the blood of the cross. There is an expectation that those who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb do certain things, but we must guard ourselves against just seeing the Bible as a book of stuff we're supposed to do to be happy and better people in this life. When we reduce the Bible to a list of rules and make ourselves the central character to the story, we undermine the story of redemption, but we also reduce the Bible to another self-help, self-improvement book. 
So we must be on guard to guard ourselves from this as we study the word, that creation and all of it exists for the glory of God. The second part of our thesis this morning that I want us to unpack is that he is at work in and through his creation. So first, we've looked at the noun for God here that's used 34 times. Now I want us to transition our attention to the verbs that are associated with the name God. So again, children who are here, I come back to you again for some basic grammar. A verb is what? It's an action word, right? It tells us the action that the subject is doing. So the writer here is overwhelming. He's saturating the text with the active role of God in creation. He said, God saw, God created, God called, he made, blessed, separated. God set, God finished, God rested. The writer wants us to see here that we do not serve a passive or distant God. We serve a God who is active in his creation and he has come near to us. We see in these verbs that he spoke everything into existence. And the writer tells us over and over, and it was so, and it was so. By the word of his power, it came into being. He sees all things. Nothing happens outside of his view. Nothing in your life happens outside of the view of God. We see that he is the creator, but also the sustainer. Uh, The word blessed is used three times here in regards to the beast and to man and to the Lord's day. And in this, we see a theme of the Old Testament, the blessing and the cursing of God. But in this, primarily in chapter 1, we see that all that we have comes from him. He is the one who gives. He is the one who provides for our needs. We see in these verbs that he is sovereignly reigning over all of creation. That nothing happens outside of his perfect control, his perfect will, or his perfect power. That everything that is happening in the universe right now is happening according to his sovereign will. The rotation of the planet, the crying of a child, a snowflake falling and touching the ground at the precise spot that it does happens according to this sovereign king. We see in these verbs that he is purposeful. This isn't just chance or happenstance. He's purposeful in creation. We see that uh, at the end of all of this, it says in verse 2 of chapter 2, God finished his work. He accomplishes all that he sets out to do. And so it's no coincidence that at the cross of Christ, Christ himself said what? It is finished. Before creation of time and space, God had set in order this plan of redemption. And when it was accomplished at the cross, according to his perfect will, Christ himself said, it is finished. We also see the purposefulness in creation and the fact that he rested on the seventh day. That he set aside a day for his image bearers to cease from their labors and works and enter into his rest. This is not a rest for God that he needed because he was tired. This is a celebratory rest. It is done. The work is is finished. And in this rest, we see a binding ordinance in creation that he would eventually establish in his law. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Finally, though, in these verbs, we see that he can be known. And he is known by the words that he speaks. First, we see in creation of this creator God that he spoke into being. 
But most importantly, he's revealed himself to us in words and a book called the Bible that he brought to us and inspired and, and taught men that were, uh, that were led by the Holy Spirit to write to us so we can know of his nature and his character and his redeeming work in this creation. And so don't forget, as you walk through the day-to-day of this life, that God is most definitely at work in and through his creation. And this Again, simple yet profound truth brings us great hope in the midst of the chaos of this life. There is a a gentleman that many of you know in our church is uh, coming to the end of his days on this earth. And the last time I was able to sit with him, I I had to write down what he said to me. I said, "How, how are you doing? And he said, brother, I'm just resting in God's hands. And trusting that his ways are good. That's how we live in light of Genesis chapter 1. That we serve the sovereign king of the universe and our hope is set in him if we believe in his son this morning. That the God who flung planets into orbit and created the entire universe by just a word is near to us this morning. And he made himself known to us, and he is working all things together for our good and his glory. And so, dear friend, rest in that today. As we enter into the year 2023, some of you might experience job loss in the coming days, the death of a loved one, sickness. Maybe you come into this place right now full of sorrow and grief because of the circumstances of life. And yet, if you are in Christ this morning, you find rejoicing in the midst of the sorrow because you serve the king of the universe. And everything is happening according to his perfect will. Rest in that, friend. The third and final part of this thesis this morning is that he created everything according to his perfect wisdom and power. Uh, We've touched on two things. First, we've looked at the noun, God, Elohim. Uh, We've looked at the verbs associated with God. I want us to finally turn our attention to what it is that he created in these seven days. Now, uh, I I need to pause here for a moment and address some controversy in Genesis chapter 1. A controversy that most pastors throughout the history of the church would not have had to stop and talk about. uh, Because this controversy is new in our day. It's only about 200 years old. And that is whether or not these are seven literal days. I just want to pause for a moment as a, as a source of help to us to, to just think about what my view is on these days. And so I hold to a seven literal day creation. And here's why. Three reasons. First, this has been traditionally held to throughout the history of Israel, but also the history of the church. And so I mentioned last week that I'm still processing and thinking through this thought, but I tend to want to avoid things that come up in the life of the church that are new, uh, that are brought into being and thought and theological conversation just because the skeptics have presented it. And so I affirm, and some of you this past week, I asked you to help me, and many of you did, so thank you for that, that God has used times in the history of the church to correct it. We think of the Reformation. We praise God for the Reformation. Uh, That the church had gotten so caught up in tradition that they needed to return to the word of God. We are not people who believe things just because tradition says so. We are Bible people. Uh, We believe things because of what the Bible teaches us. 
And so I think the line that we need to draw then is when, when the skeptics come in and they start to make noise that we don't have to feel like we have to give in to the temptation to hear what they have to say in regards to their skepticism. We can avoid the noise. Again, I'm still working on that. Help me with that. The second reason, though, and probably most importantly, why I hold to a seven-literal-day creation is the perspicuity of Scripture. That's just a fancy way of saying that the Bible is clear. We believe that the Bible can be read by a theologian and a child and be clear. That it is plain, that it is easy to understand as it is read about the essentials of the faith. And so as I read this passage, I think it's very simple and plain and clear to us that the writer has in mind seven literal days. Uh, We look at the word for day in the Hebrew, which I'm sure you know is the word for Yom. We think of Yom Kippur. Uh, The word day in the Hebrew is used in other parts of the Old Testament to speak of time more than 24 hours. Fair enough. But notice what he attaches with the word day. He says what? Evening and morning. I think this is very clear that the writer has in mind here a literal 24-hour day. Uh, Commentators and and, and scholars will affirm this, that when that word day is used with that type of wording that he most definitely has in mind there, a 24-hour day. But again, I think it's clear from the text. Something else I think that we see here that's clear, is, and we'll see this more next week, is that when Adam is created, that it is, he, he's not created from macroevolution. He didn't come from some tadpole that showed up in a pool of ooze millions of years ago. He was brought into being in a moment. And he came into being not even as an embryo, but as a man. And so I don't think it's too far-fetched for us to consider that if God can make man, Adam and Eve, old, that the rest of creation could could um, echo that. The third reason that I affirm a literal seven-day creation, and I, I must admit that this is something that others who hold to other views and opinions on this would affirm this as well. This is not unique to me. Uh, differing opinions would hold to this as well, but I, I believe that this is not outside the power of God to create the universe in seven days. Again, he spoke, and the writer says, and there was. He spoke, and it was so. And so there are other theories, um, uh, things like gap theory, the day-age theory, the framework hypothesis. Maybe some of you in this place have studied up on this, and you hold to one of those views. Uh, There is grace in this discussion. Uh, There are dear brothers that I I have that hold to some of these views. In fact, one of the commentaries that I'm using as we walk through Genesis holds to one of these differing opinions. But I think it's helpful for us to think about these things just for a moment, to hear where I'm coming from. And my challenge to you is, if you hold to one of these theories, is that you would reconsider and that you would see it in this way. Because I think what we're trying to do is... um, balance the tension and accommodate the tension that science has brought to the equation. And so just one more help here for us. How do we resolve the tension of science as we study the Bible? So I want to give us a rule here to think on, and then we're going to move back to the text. So just bear with me for a moment. What God reveals in nature can never contradict what he reveals in Scripture and vice versa. What he reveals in Scripture can never contradict what he reveals in nature. Uh, These are two forms of revelation. We call this general revelation, that God reveals himself in creation, and special revelation, that he reveals himself in the Word. And these two things cannot be at odds because God will not contradict himself. 
And so a good rule for us, I think, is when science contradicts Scripture at any point, we need to trust Scripture before we trust speculation. So I think that's helpful. I'd love to have that conversation with you more outside of that. But, but let's return to the text. What do we see here in the text? That's why we're here today, right? Not to talk about theories. We're here to talk about the text. And so before we get to the seven days, you look at verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Again, there's a lot of debate as what this verse means. I simply believe that this speaks to an unordered and incomplete work of divine creation before God gets to the seven days. Separating the dark and the light, separating the earth and the sun and the stars and filling the earth, there would have been emptiness. We see that in verse 2, but look at the seven days. Look at what he creates. Day one, light and day and night. Day two, he creates the sky. Day three, he creates land, water, and plants. Day four, the sun, moon, and stars. Day five, the creatures of the sea and the air. And day six, he creates the beast of the earth and man and woman. And then finally, on day seven, he rests. So what are some important things we can take from these days? What do we notice here? Well, several things. First, we see here that God sees his work as good and very good. This is important. All of creation was just as God wanted it to be. There's no mistakes. And this is important later on in the story when we consider the fall of man. Secondly, we see again his purposefulness in bringing order to creation. Look at verse 14. When it talks about the lights and the expanse and day from night. And he said, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. He has in mind here post-fall as man as a part of the curse has to go and work the ground. And how much have years and days and seasons and times helped man throughout creation to know when to till the land and when to sow the land and when to do the work. He's purposeful in that. He gives us purpose as creatures. He says to be fruitful and multiply. He tells the creatures of the earth to do that. He tells man and woman to do that. And so, again, as the skeptic says, there's just chaos in the world. There's this population explosion. We, we, we affirm today that God is sovereign over life. And that is in his purpose that we see the world expanding and growing in population. But thirdly and finally, in these seven days, we see that man is the crowning glory of creation. Let us make man in our own image after our likeness. Those words were not uttered about anything else in all of creation. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them, and he gives them dominion over creation. And next week, we'll talk about this more. In that, we understand that God created us for two primary purposes, to worship him, but also to obey him. In his good and purposeful work in these seven days, he lays the foundation for his law and an expectation of obedience from us. And so if you just think about the Ten Commandments, you can kind of find all of the Ten Commandments here in the seven days. We worship the Creator, not the created. Do not make for yourself graven images. How we view life, we value life because God values life. And he tells us so in his law. Do not commit uh, a crime against an offense against them by stealing or coveting or, or murder. 
We see how, how we view rest in the Sabbath day. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Later on in chapter 2, we see how we view marriage. Do not commit adultery. In creation, God is laying the foundation for order and, and obedience and worship of him. And when ignorance of God persists and a denial of his existence, lawlessness will thrive. I believe we see that in our day. The reason there's so much lawlessness in our world today is because we deny the essentials that were established at creation. What a man is, what a woman is. Simple things ordained by God at the beginning. And so the pagans at the time that Moses wrote this, they were worshiping created things like the sun and the moon and the stars. They were not worshiping the creator, they were worshiping created things, but they were also living in rebellion. Ungodly, unholy, heathen ways of living life and, and infant sacrifice and all of these wicked, wicked things that, again, we still see in our time. And so as we look at Genesis 1 this morning, as the people of God, we see a call to worship and obey this sovereign king. Now, I might be going out on a limb here in saying this, but I would assume none of you who came here and gathered in this place today uh, have a temptation of worshiping the sun or the moon. But we still are prone to worship created things rather than the creator. Our cell phones, our jobs, our careers, our life, money, laziness, we're still prone to that. And creation reminds us to give our affection and our attention and all of our worship to the creator rather than the created. We also do a really good job of, of looking out to the culture and, and pointing out the, the fallenness of our world. And rightfully so, we must speak out against the, the nonsense of our day. But so often we fail to look at ourselves and see how the culture has impacted how we live our life in response to this creator God. And I think no further than Sabbath rest. That we tend as Americans to be busy just for the sake of being busy. And we rarely give time to, to rest. The Puritans got this right. Sabbath rest. They would start thinking about the Sabbath day on Saturday night, and they would give all of their Sunday to the reading of the word and, and praying with their family and, and singing songs with their family and simply resting and stopping work to give all of their attention and focus to creator God. And yet in the day that we live in, if we're honest, it's hard for us to find an hour in our schedule each week to just gather here. And God calls us to give him an entire day of worship to him. And so my prayer is, as we consider Genesis chapter 1, that we would be reminded of God's call in our life as his people to worship him and to obey him in all things. That we would not allow the noise of the culture to deter us or distract us from what worship and obedience of creator God looks like. But that we would be faithful to who he has established us to be at creation. And so our hope this morning is not in ourselves. 
Our hope this morning is not in created things, but rather it is in a creator God who saves and time and space and all of life exists for his glory. And so I'm going to plead with you this morning, if you've never believed in Christ alone for salvation, that you would give your life to him today. Apart from Christ, living in sin, living for self, living for the flesh, living for created things, dear friend, you are set on a path of eternal destruction and separation from God in hell. And I want to plead with you this morning to believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. That the rest that we are talking about here in Genesis 1 cannot come in and of ourselves. Adam could not attain eternal rest. The law could not bring eternal rest. But one came who brings eternal rest, and it's Christ himself. He fulfills the Sabbath. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And he says this morning to you, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Stop trying to live this life in and of yourself. Turn to Christ today. Do not leave this place without believing in Christ as your Lord and Savior. Repent of your sin, repent of your fallenness, and look to Christ, the God-man who came to save sinners like me and you. As we come to the close of this service in response, I'll be here at the front. I would love to pray with you. If you need to give your life to Jesus today, come forward. Let's take care of that right here, right now. Today is the day of salvation. Do not wait till tomorrow. Do not wait till this afternoon to give your life to this sovereign king of the universe. Uh, We'll have one of our deacons here at the Connection Corner. Uh, If you'd like to just know more about our church and how you can become a member, if you need someone to pray with you other than myself, they will be there. But let's respond this morning. Friends, we serve the sovereign king of the universe. We exist for his glory. Let's respond in light of that today. Let's pray.